welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we aim to take down the facade of the military industrial congressional complex one brick at a time. It's a task many have tried and failed to do, but we hope that we are doing our part by challenging the prevailing conventional wisdom in Washington. So today, Barbara Bolin, Daniel Larison, and I will be talking about another trope in today's imperial city, reinforcing alliances, and whether the Biden administration is actually trying to do that, or whether it was just a political platitude designed to distance himself from his predecessor, Donald Trump. We will talk to Georgetown University's adjunct professor, Ben Friedman, about this later on in the show. But right now, we would like to talk about treaties, specifically the Open Skies Treaty. After all of his criticisms against Trump for getting out of this pact, which allows member states, including Russia, to run reconnaissance flights over each other's countries to gather intel on military movements, it turns out that Biden, too, has decided to let it die on the vine. So what gifts? Does he like multilateralism or not? Dan, you've written about this for Responsible Statecraft. Can you tell us a little bit about the treaty and what implications this has for U.S.-Russia relations going forward? Uh, sure, Kelly, thanks. Uh, so uh, as you said, the, the treaty allows for unarmed reconnaissance flights over the member states. Uh, most of the flights have taken place over Europe, uh, Russian flights over European countries, uh, American and allied flights over Russia. Uh, and it's actually been a very useful, uh, a very useful mechanism for uh, U.S. assistance to Ukraine, because one of the provisions of the treaty is that uh, member states that conduct the overflights that gather the intelligence are then able to share it with all members of the treaty. And so this is very useful to countries that don't have their own satellite capabilities and don't have their own uh, planes that can conduct these sorts of flights uh, that are equipped with special sensors uh, for, for recording this information. And so uh, at the outbreak of the conflict in 2014 with Ukraine, uh, the US conducted a lot of these flights as a way of providing Ukraine with information about what Russia was doing on their border. And so it's it's actually uh, something that has been very uh, directly beneficial to European countries, to European allies, uh, but also to, to partner countries as well. And so it's the kind of thing that you would expect Biden to be all in favor of. And indeed, uh, last year when he was a candidate, he was in favor of staying in the treaty. Uh, but then once Trump withdrew from it uh, and, and the U.S. is officially out as of January, uh, there, there seems to be no desire to get back into it. And, and the curious thing is that Biden is now hiding behind the same excuses that Trump used uh, for pulling out, namely that Russia has committed a certain number of violations uh, because they've restricted flights over certain sensitive areas, uh, Kaliningrad, uh, South Ossetia, and so on. Uh, so there are, uh, there are concerns about Russian violations, but they're not so serious uh, that it warrants getting rid of the entire treaty uh, because once we're out and the Russians are now on their way out as a result of that, uh, our European allies are essentially left in the dark uh, because they can't get anything from us. And then Russia won't be party to the treaty, so no one can fly over their territory either. Uh, so it's it's actually a, a significant step back from a stabilizing treaty that we've had now. Uh, it's been in effect since 2002 and that was signed in 1992 as a, a sort of confidence-building measure for the post-Cold War world. So it's, it's a, a real... Uh, a step back from where we were, and it's it's really baffling to me that Biden has taken this position because it doesn't it doesn't match up with any of the rhetoric uh, and with his own past commitments. 
Well, I mean, as you know, as a, an American, and I, I'm, I'm actually pretty fascinated by the fact that we have a treaty in which member states are allowed to fly over each other's countries and gather intelligence. And I, I mean, it actually sounds like the kind of treaty I'd like to get into. I mean, yeah, we, we would like to see less militarism, but this is gathering intelligence in order to stave off, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the assumption of threat is actually proving whether there's threat or not out there. How, how does Russia feel about the, the, the treaty? The treaty, has it ever said that it wanted to get out? Does it have issues with the treaty? Cause it sounds like it, you know, all of our flights are over Europe. So what are, you know, how have they responded to all this? They, well, so they, they want, I think they wanted to keep the treaty alive. Uh, they, although once the U S withdrew in January, they started taking steps uh, in sort of step-by-step to, uh, execute their own withdrawal in response, and so, uh, but they but they made the point in response to Biden's announcement uh, that, that they were trying to give him a chance to rejoin the treaty. Uh, they they were interested in keeping the treaty alive as as part of a larger arms control architecture, and uh, and Biden simply refused to play ball, and so I, I think it's it's really soured them even more on him uh, ahead of the the Geneva summit. And so uh, I think that's going to undermine any uh, arms control agenda that Biden wants to have with them, because they'll they'll rightfully say, you know, suppose we make it an agreement with you, what's to stop the next president from pulling out of it uh, over some pretext? And we, we don't really have a good defense against that. I mean, you know, our- it's, it's kind of interesting just from a technology standpoint, because Google Earth is so detailed and so up to date. You almost don't need the spy planes anymore for that type of surveillance. But on the other hand, for um, for some of the other technology for things that the spy planes do add to the mix, like they they have audio equipment that can pick up rustling and the the grass, and then buy and there's intel analysts that actually know. Oh, that's the such and such truck and that means these people are moving and they and they'll track like shipping containers that left an area and then showed up somewhere else or a vessel that disappeared so they there's other aspects to it besides just what might what might immediately jump to mind is oh a plane is looking down below but that's very um red baron we're we're way 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 beyond that in the technology arena these days well, I mean, one of the advantages of doing the overflights is because they, they can be arranged on short notice uh, with just a, a day or two's notice. Uh, they can catch things that satellites are going to miss because, of course, satellites are going on a regular schedule. Uh, those those things can be uh, evaded if, if the uh, military wants to avoid being seen. So there's, there is an advantage in having that kind of short-term a short notice flight available. Uh, the other you know, less well understood as advantage of the treaty is that it creates uh, an occasion for military to military cooperation between uh, US and allied and Russian officers. And so it, it creates a, a kind of a bridge for trust building right. uh, on that level uh, in addition to providing reassurance about troop movements. Right. And, and so that's all of that's getting thrown out, out the window. 
if you think about the factors that maybe hastened the Iraq war round two with George W. Bush, I think that not having accurate, the idea that there was a lot happening inside Iraq, quote unquote, if we had had actual surveillance ability from the skies, we would have known that that was false. Now, you know, with leaving aside the debate about what we did know, the ability to not um, exaggerate the threat of your supposed enemy, but being able to actually gather those facts and then be like, oh, okay, the Russians are not building extra nuclear weapons instead of saying, you know, because we have a lot of hawks here in this country who say a lot of things right now about what China is supposedly capable of. But the nice thing is we know a ton about exactly what China has. And part of it is because we have all these technologies and all these countries we share them with and share it with us. So it was interesting to see that philosophy applied in a treaty. So what do you think is going on here? I mean, is it is this just pure politics and the continuing anti-Russia sentiment within not only the administration, but in the Democratic Party? Is he playing to his Democratic Party base by saying, hey, this is just yet another way that I'm going to show that I'm tougher on Russia than my predecessor? But if that's the case, why did he criticize Trump for getting out of the treaty in the first place? No, it is strange. I, I don't know what the answer is, really. Uh, it, it seems like if you want to have a constructive relationship, especially on strategic stability, on arms control, uh, you, you don't make a point of uh, throwing one of the few remaining treaties into the trash uh, or, or you know, refusing to take it back out of the trash once it's been thrown there. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it makes me concerned that if, if New START had already expired by the time that Biden had become president, that he wouldn't have done anything about that either. And so it, it does call into question his how serious his commitment to arms control itself uh, really is, I think. And it seems like it's of a piece with his, his other promises so far that haven't come to fruition, sort of with the Iran deal and um, how he has not lifted those sanctions there. You know, he he said he wants to be restore peace in the world, restore restore the order, supposedly. But he is he seems very his at least his um, the people who work in his administration seem very reluctant to actually lift Trump administration policies for whatever reason, which it is very difficult to understand looking from the outside. I, I'd like to posit one thing. Do you think that we have something to hide and that's why we don't want any overflights that will be um, out there for other countries to see on these overflights? I mean, I just thought of that. I'm like, maybe we just don't want. Well, we do ask Google Earth to delete. I know we ask Google Earth to hide things. I, I do know that. So Google Earth is not a perfect representation uh, of what is overhead, but... Go ahead, Daniel. Yeah, but I mean, what, just one point about the, the flights, uh, the, the vast majority of them take place over Europe. So when the Russians are <laughs> spying on our, uh, on our troops, on, our on, on allied troops, uh, they're, you know, they're looking at them in Europe. They're, for the most part, they're, there are very few flights that actually take place over the U.S. Uh, it's, I think I, I looked at the, the, the stat was from uh, someone's research, um, uh, Moritz Kut, I think it was his name. Uh, he said 
it was 94% of all flights were over Europe, including Russia. Yeah, when was the last time you saw a big overhead? Do you know what? I would like, I would die if that happened. Right, but but maybe, maybe that's the point. Maybe we don't want them to see what we're doing in Europe and how many troops we have in Europe and, you know, how much. Oh, because we're moving them right now. Maybe that's true. You're dirty up. That's. Because we, because because of all the policies about shifting from Europe, and we're taking guys out of Afghanistan, we're actually doing a lot of troop movement right now. A so we may not want a lot of shifting, and we actually don't even know. Like, are they moving them completely out from? You know, the idea that we're drawing down in Afghanistan does not, as you are all well aware, mean that we're actually leaving the region. Right. We're, so what we're if we're putting them home. somewhere? Right. Yeah, we're definitely not bringing troops home. So if we're putting them somewhere in the region nearby, we might, we wouldn't want Russia to know that. At least we wouldn't want Russia to know it instantly or any other enemy that they might share it with, like Iran. Because they share, don't forget that Russia and Iran share intelligence with each other to some extent. And we are very concerned about that because also we share intelligence with Israel. We could start a world war here in a couple of minutes if we had perfect access to all the troop movement we're doing. I mean, that's that's been a classic war causer par excellence, because if you know that your enemy is weak, that's the perfect time to attack. And we would be weak somewhere right now. That's actually a good point. What do you think, Dan? Um, well, I, I mean, I think in, in terms of our, our troop movements in Europe, I, I'm not sure that we're that worried that they know about them. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know what explains the hostility to the treaty, except that it's, at least on the Republican side, I know that it comes from this antipathy to arms control as such. And so the, you know, the biggest advocates for getting out have been Tom Cotton and John Bolton and people like that, who see uh, basically any arms control agreement as inherently uh, disadvantageous to us because it puts limits on us or it exposes our uh, military to outside surveillance. So, it, you know, I don't know... Uh, I don't know what accounts for the Biden decision, but it, it's definitely a bad decision. I think it's also worth mentioning a lot of political or commentary that I've seen in the media as to why Biden has been so reluctant to follow through on most of the foreign policy commitments that he made in the campaign have cited, oh, he is trying to appeal to the far left, the AOC, the squad. But I don't think that that's what it is at all. I think there's an administrative and a bureaucratic resistance that's definitely present. And there's also some kind of a policy issue in higher ups. And it's not, I do not believe it's a political calculation because why does Biden have to go to the far left on foreign policy? Exactly who does that get him in the general election? Assuming he was even to run again, I don't see how that benefits him long term. And I just wanted to throw that out there, too, because this is the main theory that's been posited as to why he's like this. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know what you guys think. Well, I think that we're going to probably talk with Ben about this in the next segment. So let's wrap here and we're going to bring that question right to him. Ben 
Friedman is an analyst with Defense Priorities and an adjunct lecturer at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He previously worked as a defense analyst at the Cato Institute and a researcher at the Center for Defense Information. He's edited three books on defense policy and strategy and has published academic essays in international security, political science quarterly, Orbis, foreign affairs, and world affairs. He has also contributed articles and op-eds to New York Times, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, Politico, The Atlantic, Newsweek, Time, and many more. Ben, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. And I'd like to start off by talking about a piece you wrote that was published by MSNBC entitled, Biden doesn't like Russian meddling in Ukraine, but he's not prepared to stop it. Now, you talk about the Biden administration, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken, publicly warning Russia about the buildup on the Ukrainian border and wonder, quite rightly, whether the U.S. is actually prepared to fight Russia on Ukraine's behalf. I know in a recent column by Rick Rozoff at antiwar.com that NATO is at least putting on a good show of getting ready for that war, quote unquote. He he notes that the final planning conference for this year's Seabreeze NATO naval exercise occurred in Odessa, 188 miles from the Crimean port city of Sevastopol, where the Russian Black Sea Fleet is, is currently based. Uh, Seabreeze in 2021 will be the first iteration of the U.S. Sixth Fleet organized event, one employed to, quote, drill with the navies and other armed forces of America's NATO allies and partners in Russia's own backyard. Ukraine is the host nation, and Odessa will be a key hub for the activities. He adds that this year's exercise will be unprecedented in terms of the 27 countries participating, plus another seven observing. Surely this plays into the perception that the U.S. and NATO are serious about protecting Ukraine and its neighbors from the Russian menace, doesn't it? Or what are you seeing might be the real story here? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the exercise uh, is part of an effort to show uh, that we're serious about dealing, uh, fighting Russia, potentially in Ukraine or elsewhere. Uh, The United States uh, has not ruled out putting Ukraine in NATO or voting along with the other NATO members if they do to put Ukraine in NATO. Uh, I don't think we're going to do it, but uh, it's, it's, you know, I think it's something we should outwardly reject. Uh, and yeah, the, the real, um, or my preferred title of the op-ed you mentioned was we shouldn't pretend to protect Ukraine or we can't save Ukraine or something like that. And I, I thought I, the perspective that I have is underrepresented, which is I'm sympathetic to Ukraine. I feel like they're in a tough situation where, you know, they have Russian troops having taken over Crimea in 2014 and uh, sparked, or you know, Russia has helped spark separatists in the Donbass part of Ukraine and Eastern Ukraine. Uh, and uh, they're in a tough spot, but the, the natural sympathy that 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 engenders in the United States doesn't translate into the United States having a strong interest uh, in fighting for Ukraine. And thus, I think our ability to make serious threats, credible threats on behalf of Ukraine, even if we do exercises, and I think even if we put them in NATO, uh, is deeply questionable. 
because you know it's it's clearly not going to affect American well-being. And whereas on the the Rush, there's an asymmetry of interest. The Russians have much stronger interests, so I don't think we're we can easily deter them. And uh, there are reasons why I think it's bad to bluff. I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, we might as well just bluff for Ukraine. That's the least we can do is say some things that maybe, you know, will put some doubt in the mind of Putin, Putin uh, and Russia, create some sort of strategic, amb- strategic ambiguity like we have with regard to Taiwan. But in the article, I argue that that's uh, actually hurtful uh, to U.S. and maybe even Ukrainian interests, which is, you know, that we have to do ex- one reason for that is we have to do expensive things uh, and risky things to back up any perception that we might defend Ukraine, potentially move troops further east in Europe, uh, maybe have expensive exercises, uh, harm diplomacy with Russia that could be helpful in various areas in arms control, potentially in Syria, things like that. And uh, maybe more importantly, I think bluffing on behalf of Ukraine uh, will cause the Ukrainians to choose a security strategy that says, uh, let's go to the West for help. Let's not accept the desperate situation we're in, which requires us probably, given our geography, to compromise with Russia, to basically allow some autonomy for the Donbass region, be neutral in between NATO and Russia and probably accept the loss of Crimea and their politics in Kiev for understandable reasons. They have nationalists there. They don't want to do that. They don't want to compromise. But I think that's the most viable path to security for them is to be essentially Finlandized, as you know, the term from the Cold War would put it, where you, you they're neutral. That's unfortunate for Ukraine, but I think it, it, from our perspective in the United States, since we can't stop it, just pretending to help them only slows down or delays the time when that when that compromise would occur and potentially continues uh, the civil war there by preventing a settlement. So that's a long-winded answer, but uh, I think you know we're not doing Ukraine any favors by uh, sort of intimating that we might fight for them. Hi, Ben, it's Barbara. Um, thanks for coming on the show. I'm curious um, if you could just a quick question. Uh, has the U.S. made this mistake toward with in their dealings with Russia uh, in the past? Um, because I'm, I'm just thinking of, for instance, Eisenhower's declaration uh, towards the Hungarians and how this type of bluffing and then not following through, or potentially if you're called on it, you can't follow through, how that might have played out historically that the U.S. and Russia kind of have this back and forth where they, where we do this, we say we're going to, we're, we're going to defend a country or we want, we're, that, that we're allied with them against Russia. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there have been uh, examples certainly where we bluffed uh, a bit. I mean, you know, a lot of the Cold War uh, involved, you know, these questions roll back and if we were going to, uh, in the 1950s or 60s, do something more aggressive to defend countries in the in the Eastern Bloc. We didn't, uh, which I think you know was wise. Uh, so you know it was more just rhetoric in the political system in the United States than something more concrete. Uh, there may be you know it was a right, but I guess to your point, like the Hungarians, it ended up killing them because they revolted, and we didn't come in to save their backs. So it, with Ukraine. If that was to be an analogous situation, potentially could be, were they to follow through or take our advice and we don't come 
I think people are starting to get the idea now with Iraq a few times, but you know, that's kind of the, the, the follow through, I think with what you're saying with the bluffing being dangerous because we don't have any intention of actually doing what we say we're going to do in these promises that we're making to these smaller nations allied uh, with us. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the big problems for being a big, powerful country like the United States is we don't appreciate the moral hazard we can create for smaller, weaker countries. You know, moral hazard is just the idea from insurance that if you're fully insured for something, uh, you can be reckless. So if you rent a car and you don't have to pay for damages, you have, you know, zero deductible, you might, you know, you're not going to crash and die, but you might drive recklessly in a parking lot and dent it up or something like that. That's moral hazard. And uh, I think the United States can potentially spark a lot of uh, moral hazard or reckless driving, as some people put it, uh, where uh, we encourage our allies to to be a bit reckless. And, you know, the case of Georgia uh, in 2008, uh, where arguably Shakisvili uh, thought that he had some commitment from elements of the Bush administration, or he'd, you know, been in Washington, D.C. and was, you know, being feted by neoconservatives and things like that. And you know, maybe got the idea that the United States would uh, back him up or at least do something uh, coercive enough, threatening that Russia wouldn't uh, come into the uh, independent area of Georgia, uh, that, you know, they, they support the Russian uh, ethnic area. And uh, they did. So uh, he was wrong. And arguably, the United States policy sparked that. It, it's And it's happened, uh, you know, in, in probably other various other situations where there's degrees of moral hazard, usually with less disastrous results. But certainly with Ukraine, I think it's uh, a live possibility. I guess what I left out of my little summary of my op-ed is that I said one of the other uh, dangers of bluffing is that you cause the thing that you're meaning to prevent and that Russia might look and say, uh, look, I, we doubt that the United States is really going to defend Ukraine, but uh, they're putting the NATO expansion to Ukraine on the table uh, which pre prevent us from being able to coerce Ukraine uh, more easily in the future, maybe, or uh, why? So why take the risk of waiting around for the U.S. to do something in Ukraine when we could just solve the problem now and invade? I think that's more likely than that we prevent invasion that we would actually spark it by, through the prospect of uh, you know maybe coming to their aid because even if they don't believe the threat, they might say, well, you know, we don't we can obviate that possibility by doing something aggressive. So yeah, it's a real problem. And I think it's, you know, something that the United States doesn't, doesn't pay enough attention to, particularly, by the way, it's off subject, but with regard to rebel groups, you know, like Alan Cooperman, who's a professor, University of Texas has written a lot about moral hazard when it comes to um, rebel groups that we give some support to and how we may just prolong civil wars uh, by you know, giving rebels the idea that we might come to their aid through, you know, humanitarian concerns or something like that and actually wind up making things worse. Uh, definitely, Ben. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about as you were saying that is that really the, the core problem that we've had in our policy towards Russia and, and towards Ukraine and Georgia uh, over the last uh, more than 10 years now is that we opened the door uh, to future NATO expansion uh, at the Bucharest summit in 2008. Uh, the, the Russians moved almost immediately to, to slam that door shut, uh, as you were talking about with the August 2008 war. Uh, but, but NATO is still formally committed to bringing them in at some point in the future. And so it's that, 
it's that possibility of NATO expansion, even though it's a, a far-fetched one, uh, that I think continues to paint a target on both of these countries. And it, and it has actually made them less secure. Uh, and so the, the idea that, as you were saying, uh, if, we, if we keep talking about this, it's going to actually make things much worse uh, for the countries that it's supposedly protecting. Uh, and just talking about bluffing, uh, Biden was saying uh, when the, the Russian buildup first got going earlier this year, uh, that the U.S. provides unwavering support to Ukraine, uh, which is clearly not true. Why do you think Biden and other politicians feel compelled to make these sorts of uh, overwrought uh, rhetorical statements of support uh, for countries that we're not really going to fight for? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it, I think, is is domestic politics and, and the, the idea uh, that uh, Russia is uh, evil and, and confusing U.S. foreign policy, which should serve U.S. interests in a practical way with uh, sort of uh, a quest for justice. Uh, and I, I think justice is great, you know, but uh, it's not a good basis for making foreign policy because you won't achieve it. So the idea becomes, well, Russia is evil. Ukraine is a victim of this evil uh, perpetrated by Vladimir Putin, who's a killer, uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're violating human rights in Russia. They're doing bad things. So we have to be on the side of good. And uh, I think that's the, the way uh, a lot of people, even in, in high up in government, understand it, or at least they reflect that view because they're in politics. Uh, but, uh, you know, as we've discussed, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what you think of what Russia is doing if you can't fix it, if you can't do anything about it. The human rights situation in Russia is lamentable, but uh, I don't think that anything we do in Ukraine has a thing to do with that. Arguably, we make it worse by uh, creating greater tension. Uh, so I think you know one big reason is just this domestic politics and this way of looking at Russia and on the, on the, in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think, unfortunately, something that came out of impeachment. And I don't know how strong this effect is, but we had this rhetoric, uh, you know, from William Taylor, who was ambassador to Ukraine, from Adam Schiff and the impeachment hearings, from the articles of impeachment themselves uh, that said that Trump had uh, compromised American security or U.S. national security by withholding aid to Ukraine in exchange for this dirt uh, he thought he might get on Biden. Uh, you had this sort of buildup of the idea that our commitment to Ukraine, uh, which was limited to, you know, some weapons shipments and training was was a kind of sacred duty. And uh, I, I felt at the time, you know, there's uh, the view that it's bad to trade aid for dirt on a political opponent. It's corrupt. Uh, but that aid is not very important to U.S. national security. Arguably, it's counterproductive in ways we already discussed. Nobody was saying that. It was really, I mean, probably, Dan, you were, and you guys probably were too. But, uh, you know, it felt like such a lonely position. The Democrats are jumping up and down, you know. Uh, and I, it's understandable in some ways that when you're impeaching someone, you get a little rhetorically over uh, exercise. But I think it had the effect of making a, a vague U.S. commitment to Ukraine seem even larger at least for that side of the political spectrum in a similar way to, you know, how the criticism of Trump's non-exit from Syria 
uh, as an abandonment of a, our allies created uh, a public opinion on the left that said we should stay in Syria. You know, I don't know how deep that is, but it was it was a kind of uh, reaction to Trump not getting out of Syria, but saying he would. So similarly, I think that was it was unhelpful. And uh, again, you know, I think it's natural to be sympathetic to Ukraine, given their situation with Russia. But, uh, you know, pretending that our national security depends on giving them uh, some arms is nuts. And the, the uh, for reasons we could go into. But, you know, Obama, when he gave his uh, kind of exit interview to Jeffrey Goldberg in the Atlantic, where he sort of denounced the uh, well, he did. He criticized what he called the Washington playbook, which is like the blob, uh, which his aide Ben Rhodes had invented, of course, that term. And, uh, you know, the statement he made on Ukraine was great. And like other statements in that interview, it seemed to criticize policies that he had himself adopted. But, you know, he said, yeah. uh, you know, Russia's not better off because they went into Crimea. They're worse off. You know, they were better off when they could pull the strings in a kleptocratic regime in Ukraine that would do what they say than when they were occupying a part of it and have, having to build up military forces on the border as they now have uh, to threaten to get their way with unclear results. I mean, you know, it's not like the, the government of Ukraine is not not going along with Russia. So they're, uh, Obama was right, you know, after he was wrong in policy when he, when he said that, I think, about Ukraine. And he understood uh, intellectually, even if it didn't manifest itself in policy, that, you know, it was the United States wasn't really achieving much. I mean, when you have a balance of power, just to harp on this point, that that is so out of whack as you have between Ukraine and Russia, even leaving out the fact that there's a large portion of the Ukrainian population that is sympathetic to Russia and doesn't believe they should arm against Russia, right? Before they lost control of part of their country, that was the case. But, uh, you know, they spend, I think, something like uh, a 20th, what Russia spends on uh, military spending. Their GDP is vastly smaller. They have this long, I think, uh, 1,200 miles or something like that border that's largely, uh, e you know, easily traversed with Russia that's essentially indefensible. Uh, so they're in a situation uh, that that they can't really defend themselves on their own against Russia. And if the United States is in the business of trying to fix that, it's going to be incredibly expensive and involve a lot of uh, threats that we're probably not uh, actually going to act on, which will make matters worse with Russia, I think, without actually achieving the goal that we set out to. So, uh, yeah, it's anyway, in, in, you know, you can't just pick the weaker side and help them and think that's going to fix things. It's you're making an impact. You're just often in that case, prolonging war, or at least a, a untenable situation. Right. And well, coming back to Ukrainian public opinion, it's, it's one of the interesting things because we don't often hear it in the debate about what U.S. policy ought to be. Uh, I, I believe most Ukrainians prefer that the alignment of their country be neutral. They, they would rather not be in either bloc, either aligned with Russia or with NATO. And so in, in some ways, the, the advocates for a strong uh, anti-Russian policy in Ukraine are, are trying to be sort of more Ukrainian than the Ukrainians, right? Um, uh, just, just to add on one other thing, uh, Biden is looking at uh, having a meeting with Putin next month, a uh, possible summit meeting, uh, which will probably mostly be focused on arms control. Uh, do you think that the summit's going to happen? And do you think that any negotiations over the Ukraine conflict will take place there? I, you know, I don't really know. I, I think that um, Biden 
seems to be more practical and uh, successful even behind the scenes than some of the public, uh, you know, comments uh, from his administration would indicate. Uh, you know, I don't know. He had this conversation with Putin uh, that uh, occurred after the buildup of Russian forces that may have been helpful. You know, and what he and then Biden announced that we do this strategic stability dialogue. I think it's called to deal with arms control, and he said, "I want to have a summit." With Putin, I think that all might have been helpful. I mean, uh, so uh, I imagine the issue of Ukraine will come up. I'm doubtful that it will lead to, uh, you know, some sort of useful resolution or something like that. But uh, it's it's possible progress could be made. Uh, but you know, it's it's difficult to see uh, what areas are sort of ripe for uh, progress in the U.S.-Russian relationship now. Uh, arms control seems like one, but we already extended a uh, new start uh, under Biden, which was a good thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, he said, I believe the Biden administration said they're not, we're not going back in the open skies treaty. There's, uh, you know, other things that one could think of in terms of arm control, but uh, like tactical nuclear weapons in Europe. But uh, I, don't, I don't know if that, you know, is on the agenda. Uh, I think it would be nice if they would discuss uh, the, mm-hmm the end of the war in Syria and start trying to, you know, the United States has sort of been a non-participant in diplomacy around ending or some sort of deal to get out of, or to end the civil war in Syria while we've had troops. So we've been participating in the war and not really participating in the diplomacy, which has gone on between Russia, uh, Iran and Turkey. And, uh, you know, I think it would be nice if we talked to the Russians about, you know, how do we resolve uh, or how can we get Assad uh, to you know, win the war, which he's going to anyway, with, at the minimum cost to the people uh, in Syria, if, if you know it involves withdrawing Turkish forces, for example, from the northeast. Anyway, so uh, uh, northwest Syria, Idlib province. So that's kind of a side thing, but uh, you know, there, there's a lot of good things, or at least useful things, the United States can do with Russia, and uh, if we get caught up uh, on enmity. And trying to punish them for human rights stuff, uh, I think it could uh, prevent progress in those areas. And it's not, I think it's really unlikely to help. I mean, I don't think we should have a problem saying you shouldn't starve dissidents or let them starve and you shouldn't throw people in jail or murder journalists. Fine, say it. Uh, But, you know, the idea that we can actually fix it and we should sanction Russia because of it, I think, just gets in the way of useful international relations or diplomacy between these two big powers. Hi, Ben. This is Barbara again. I um, I want to turn to a slightly different topic, still involving Russia, but um, this uh, on the 19th, the U.S. announced that they're sanctioning, um, well, a Russia to Germany gas pipeline. That had already been announced a while back, but that they're going to exempt the German company and its CEO while keeping the sanctions on the Russian companies and the vessels that are participating in the construction. So I wanted to, I know we are nearly out of time. So I, uh, I hope this isn't going to be too complicated of a question, but I'm just curious to get your sort of um, take here because I saw your statement on this um, announcement. Is this new in the sanctions world, this sort of half in, half out approach? I mean, from a free markets perspective, even just engineering and 
physics. I'm not really sure how you can sanction half of a pipeline, but I was I was kind of wondering if what exactly the Biden administration is trying to achieve here, and if you've seen this sort of split the baby approach to sanctions before. Well, first of all, I think you should use that line. I don't know how you can sanction half a pipeline somewhere <laughs> in, in a public region. But um, yeah, I, I don't know, actually, if, if I can think of an example uh, off the top of my head where we've done that uh, with sanctions. But, you know, we issue so many sanctions that it's pretty likely uh, <laughs> that we've done something like that. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know because I don't I, I can't think of, you know, another uh, thing that we sanction like a pipeline that has this uh, the, these particular qualities. But I will say, uh, I've always thought it's crazy that the United States would sanction Germany over the way it chooses to buy energy. And that's what this is. I mean, uh, it's one thing to say you wish you wouldn't do this, but using secondary sanctions to coerce them into buying gas somehow another way or buying energy in another way uh, is is you know it's not just that it, it's it's likely to fail because the pipeline's almost done and alienate the Germans for no reason, but it's also sort of ironic because the, you know it comes these sanctions come on the heels. Okay, they waived it against these this, this company and this CEO, but the you know the broader sanctions come on the heels of the Biden administration saying you know America's back and you know we're going to uh, be kind to our European allies again, and then this is a fairly concrete example of they're saying well unless you know, you want to buy natural gas. Uh, <laughs> Unless you don't and, follow our orders. Uh, like Germany, Germany has some strange energy policies, and I don't know if I would support all of them if I were German, but uh, I don't think it should be Washington's or the United States' job to say how they should do it. And, uh, you know, if we feel like we have to make these demands of them because we have so many troops in Germany and we're doing stuff for them, it's a reason, I think, to have fewer troops in Germany. But uh, let let the Germans decide and you know they're not that dependent on on russian energy there's statistics that show that western europe including germany is less dependent on russian gas uh than they used to be because they have diversified energy supplies so it's not like they're just going to be at the behest of putin uh the germans when they do this i think also buyers get some power in these arrangements uh as well as suppliers and it used to be this idea in international relations that interdependence between historical belligerents like Germany and Russia, economic interdependence was a good thing. Like it puts them in a in a in a relationship that makes war a little more costly. Should that ever recur, so uh, I think you know, in that sense, it could be a good thing uh, that that this pipeline uh, gets built, and and the United States should. I mean, I, I think one of the things that's happening is that we're trying to get them to buy LNG gas liquefied natural gas from Texas, uh, you know, it's, there's, it's not totally yeah. clear uh, what the interests at stake are. But, you know, I saw Ted Cruz, for example, who's obviously from Texas, pressing Blinken on this issue in the confirm- in his confirmation hearing and Blinken promising, you know, oh, yeah, we're, you know, I can't, well, I won't promise, you know, exactly what we'll do, but I'm with you. We don't, we think this pipeline is bad. So some of it is domestic energy interests, which you know, Which I is think. particularly bad when we've been accused of starting a war for oil and now we're using a weapon of war sanctions for a market purpose, getting people to buy our oil. I mean, if there's not a historical reason, if we can't say that we used to fight wars for oil, we look like we could be headed on the path of fighting wars for oil in the near future with 
country as unlikely as Germany, which, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's part of a broader pattern of the United States just really abusing its financial power and the fact that, you know, all these uh, transactions around the world occur in dollars and uh, that we take advantage of the centrality of our financial system to coerce people. And uh, I think in, in, in one sense, uh, there are times probably when, you know, this is, it's good to have this power, but in, and use it now and then, but we, I think we totally overuse it. Like in punishing uh, European companies and other companies for doing business with Iran uh, and successfully getting them to stop, uh, you know, we're alienating our allies into what, uh, which, you know, maybe it's a good thing, like not an ally worshiper, but uh, to what end, you know, the, you know, we, it didn't work with Iran, obviously. It's not, I don't think it's going to work with Nord Stream 2. Uh, and, you know, I think we're encouraging countries to find other ways to transact financially that aren't so dependent on the United States, which could be bad for us in the long term. So uh, Nord Stream 2 just seems a particularly egregious example. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ben. Uh, we, we've run out of time, but really appreciate you coming on the show and look forward to talking with you again. Yeah. I'm glad this is happening. You know, let, let's, uh, you know, I hope I can come back on and we can talk more about the establishment. You know, yeah, there's so much. Yeah. We didn't get the war part yes, there's, part, there's, you know? there was like, I had another question on the pipeline and I couldn't even. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be, I'll, I'll give pithier answers in the future. Thanks. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Thanks, Ben. It was great. Right. Take care, Ben. again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.